I don't mean to, to start off things like a bummer, and I promise I'm going to try to be like more energetic and more entertaining as we go uh, through today, but um, have you ever just had a day where you don't want to get out of bed? You know, you woke up and you, you saw the world around you and you thought, I, I just can't do it today. If we're being honest, I've had a lot of those days lately. I've woken up and been rocked by the waves of trial and blown off balance by the winds of grief. Every day I see storms and I, I want to turn back around and I just want to go to sleep. I want to go to sleep because I know what those storm clouds mean. I feel far too exhausted to face all that they entail and I, I just want to run away from the problems that sin has created. I don't think I'm alone in those feelings by, based on some of the, the head shakes that I've seen and, and just by knowing people. I think that some of us have woken up this morning and we even thought, man, coming here is just too much. See, that's the thing about storms. The thing about storms is that whether they're metaphorical or whether they're actual, just kind of makes you want to curl up and go to bed. And today, we're going to be digging further into the story of Jonah as he continues his runaway from God and his will. And we'll discover how Jonah saw a storm, saw and knew what it meant, and decided, I'm just going to take a nap instead. Then we'll ask the question of what happens when God's people don't do what God's asked them to do. So we're going to start in, in the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them. Jonah is in the, the Old Testament, or the, the, the you know, first two-thirds of the Bible. If you have a paper Bible, it's really hard to find, so just use the table of, of contents. If you have your phone, it's a lot easier to find. We'll also have the words on the screen, so don't worry about that. If you want to look at the version I'm reading, we'll be using the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. So Jonah, we're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 4. It says this, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. So let's hold there for just a second. Those of us that have been here for the last few weeks or know this story, you know exactly how we got here. But for everybody else, that's kind of catching up. Jonah was a prophet of God. A prophet is someone who, who's received God's word and he speaks them to specifically in the Old Testament Israel. Occasionally, God would give words to prophets to other pagan nations. But for Jonah, God gave him a very unique call. God told Jonah to go to another country and to tell them about the, uh, about the destruction that was coming. God told Jonah to go to a pagan nation, a violent nation, a destructive nation, and a terroristic nation to tell them that God was going to destroy them. And Jonah quickly responded with a thanks but no thanks, God. And he takes off in the opposite direction to the farthest reaches of the Israelite world. We aren't given any information as to why Jonah actually made this choice early on, but later on in the story, so I'm going to give a spoiler alert here. I'm sorry if you guys don't know the story, but spoiler alert, we find out that he doesn't want to go because he hates that God is merciful when people repent, and he hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrian people, and, and probably for good reason. The Assyrians were, were awful people. See, Jonah was a little bit racist. He didn't want for God to save people. 
So because of Jonah's sin, both his disobedience and his racism, God sends a storm. The men on the boat were most likely experienced mariners. This probably wasn't their first time out on the ocean, and so they had seen the storms before. They knew what they were doing, but they panicked when this storm came. They like full on freaked out. This storm wasn't like anticipated. They hadn't seen storm clouds and, and gotten ready for them. It seems like this storm just started. It was violent and it was terrifying. The text tells us that they were so afraid they started crying out to their gods, but that's not really the way that we know they're panicked. The way that we know they're panicked is that they, they, they threw their cargo over the side of the ship. Now, for you and I, like thinking like, okay, lighter ship sinks slower, right? That's, that makes sense to me, right? Like, I want to I get stuff out so maybe we can have a chance, but that's not really the reality of these men. It seems practical to us but this really speaks deeply to how terrified they were. See, the cargo was how the men made their living. They didn't get paid to be on the ship. They got paid to deliver the cargo. Everything depended on them getting it there. There was no insurance that would reimburse you know, people for lost cargo. So when they showed up, they wouldn't get paid. And that could be extremely detrimental to their lives. Men who were depending on this to feed their families, to feed themselves. They might even have to repay the merchants for the cargo that was lost. And if they couldn't pay the, what was owed, they may have to go to debtor's prison and be in prison to pay off their debt. Like everything about them throwing cargo over shows that they had freaked out. This was a violent storm. We don't get many of those up here in Washington. If you've ever been to Texas, I'll show you some violent storms. That, that's a violent storm. When you feel like God's real angry and like when, when suddenly the streets are flooded and trees are like falling down and not just falling down, but like, like coming across the road, being thrown everywhere like that. That's the kind of storm we're thinking here. This is no normal storm. That, that word that, that it says that there, uh, God threw a storm. Some of your translations would say hurl. That is actually gives the impression of throwing or hurling a weapon, a spear or a rock. Like this is a, a weapon of judgment set against Jonah. The storm was, was a result of sin. And the word used to describe great, so it said that a great God sent or God threw a great wind, is the same word as describing Nineveh. A great city. So essentially, God said, well, if you won't go into a great city, I'm going to send you into a great storm. Because here's a truth that I would love for us to write down if you guys are taking notes. All sin has a storm attached to it. All sin has a storm attached to it. Now, let me, be, let me first say this. that, that this, There's no kind of transitive property thing going on here. Not all storms are because of sin. Okay? Just because all sin has storms doesn't mean that all storms are because of sin. But the tough truth here is that sin has consequences. When we flee from God in disobedience, storms are inevitable. The Bible teaches us that not every hardship, struggle, or trial is a result of sin. But it very clearly teaches that sin results in struggle. We can't destroy our bodies with substance abuse or sloth or gluttony and expect to live long, healthy lives. Can we all agree with that? We can't ignore the needs of vulnerable people in our society and expect to only pursue our selfish desires and for the world to live in peace as Jesus intended. We can't violate God's laws because when we do, we violate our own design. 
The Bible talks about sin in two ways. God, uh, the first way is God punishing sin. So like in, in Proverbs 16, 5, it says this, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. It's God punishing sin. The other way that we see the Bible talk about sin is this. Other, uh, we see that sin punishes us. Again in Proverbs verse 20, or chapter 21, verse 7, it says the violence of the wicked sweeps them away because they refuse to act justly. So the Bible deals with sin in two different ways, that God punishes sin and that sin punishes us because it's a destructive force. But whether it's the natural consequence of sin or the direct judgment of God, sin causes storms. Dr. Kim, Tim Keller puts it this way, sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. Let me read that one more time. Sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. It is us, our will, bringing destruction on us. Sin is destructive and it's harmful and in deep and profound ways. It will always bring about destruction. That's what sin does. But it isn't always like an arrow through the head. It's often like an overwhelming dose of radiation. See, the, the effects may not show up in a day, in a week, in a month, or maybe even a year, but eventually sin will show itself, and the tumor that has been forming will become apparent. Sin is a deep rot. It's a malignant tumor that slowly kills us, but it always kills us. However, I, I started off by saying something really, really important. Uh, storms are not always a result of your sin. Let me be very clear about that. Sometimes it's just a result of sin in general. Living in a world that is inherently broken makes storms inevitable. When we put our faith in Jesus, the ultimate for destruction for sin, it's taken care of. It's dealt with. We're saved from the ultimate destruction that sin causes. But we still have to live here in a broken world where sin is ever present. Difficulty and trial will unfortunately become chronic companions of ours. Friends, though, we have hope. Because the work of Jesus and the providence of God together, we are promised that if we belong to him, every difficulty that we face in this broken world because of sin will help us break the power of sin over our lives. It can awaken us to truth that we didn't see before. Or storms can create a dependence on him. And that dependence produces humility and self-control and long-suffering. It sounds like something like the fruit of the Spirit that we heard about in Galatians. God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called by his name. But friends, storms are intrinsically linked to sin and its effects. Let's move on to the story and kind of see where this takes us. Jonah chapter 1 verse 5 says this. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Yo, I get it. Like, he, he kind of, he walks out, he sees what's happening, he's like, no, I gotta take a nap, guys. Like, I understand this reaction. When my yard's getting out of hand, that's my reaction, right? I walk out, see that, I'm like, no, not, not this Saturday. Let's go back, right? 
When I have to call the insurance company for the 30,000th time to try to get my car repaired because my car got stolen, I don't want to make that call. I just want to go to sleep. When I have lunch on my calendar with someone I've wronged that I have to apologize to them, I have to sit there and listen face to face as they tell me how much I've hurt them. And I know that reconciliation probably won't happen. My, my forgiveness probably won't be obtained. I want to go back to sleep too. I get it. So I don't want to cast dispersion at too much on Jonah. But man, when storms come, it's hard to face. I think as Christians in an unchurched place like the Pacific Northwest, we can get up in the morning and, and, and see the world and feel the same way. We see a broken school system and we say, my kids will never be go there because God's not welcome. We see a government that seems to value the opposite things that we do. And so we pray, God, come quickly and we don't vote or get involved. We see a foster care system flooded with kids with so many unique needs and struggles. And we think, ah, that's too bad. I just don't have the energy to support them or to support the people that take them in. Maybe we look at our marriage and our families. And all we see is hurt and failure and we just don't have the energy. To reconcile. Guys, there's so many times that we just want to go back to sleep. Our world is dying. And there is so much need everywhere we look. There's so many structures and, and systems that are seemingly irreparably broken. And we just want to go deep into the boat. And we just want to take a nap. We want to close our eyes to it all. We, like Jonah, we want to sleep the sleep of sorrow. We should be heartbroken for the state of the world. We should be heartbroken for the state of our schools. We should be heartbroken for the state of the foster care system. We should be, be heartbroken if our relationships and marriages and families are broken. I get that. We should. And so, so often we just want to sleep the sleep of sorrow. Because that's what we feel like we need. We're too tired to face the result of sin. Whether it's ours or someone else's. But friends, this is not how Jesus taught us to live. This is not who he saved us to be. Jonah's dismissiveness for the welfare of these men is really astonishing. Like, they're going to die because of him. And he just wants to go to sleep. As the chosen people of God, we are called to act as Jesus did when he interacted with people who were vulnerable, just like these men. Jesus taught us to be loving and generous and respectful and just. The gospel is the answer to all that we face. Our strong God is the only one strong enough to turn the tides of the raging seas. And we cannot go to sleep, friends. Because we have the answer to all of these questions in Jesus. You see, if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Private faith is no public good. We are called to be ambassadors of light in storms of darkness. Jesus sent us, his church, into all the world, not to be the saviors, but to tell them about a savior and to do as he would do. Jonah was hiding. He was exhausted in anger and grief and shame. But here's the beauty for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. We get to put all of those burdens, the shame, the grief, the anger, we get to put those 
on Jesus. And because we do not have to carry the weight of sin and shame, we're able to carry the gospel. Jonah had a way out for these men, just like we have a way out for the world. But he allowed the weight of sin and shame to pull him deep inside the ship. Church, we must not allow ourselves to carry a weight that we were never made to bear. That Jesus has already borne on the cross. When we go as instructed as he instructed us to do, heads high, joy as our strength, into the storms of life that our neighbors face, we will be the hope of the world that the body of Christ was always intended to be. If our faith is a deeply private thing, if we cloister in the walls of our churches, if we sleep through the cries of panic of the world, what good is our faith to the earth? The ministry of reconciliation, Paul taught us, has been given to us. We are ambassadors. As ambassadors for Christ, God is making his appeal to a hurting and broken world through you and through me. So practically, this can look like all sorts of things. It means serving in our communities through making them vibrant and beautiful places. It means being a people who see every encounter as a ministry opportunity. It means living open-handed with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures, so that we can be generous with everything that we have. It looks like opening our homes to our neighbors so we can have dinner and conversations. It looks like coaching that PB soccer team because no one else will. It looks like sitting with a widow as she tells you about the 50 years of life and love that she experienced with her husband who was gone before her. As a people, we should be about the common good. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points to this truth. So he, he implores those listening that the, good, that the world will see the good works done in his name and that they will glorify, the world will glorify Jesus because of it. The world is watching us because we belong to him. And when the world sees us doing his business, they will glorify him. See, Jonah hid his faith. But even the pagans were willing to give his God a try, right? And I think that's so much of what our world does. They're going to find a time where they've done everything. They've exhausted all that they have. And they're going to say, well, let me give your God a try. We've got to be awake for those moments. I mean, of all the people who should have been praying to God, Jonah was probably on the top of the list, yeah? But he wasn't. He was asleep. God had sent Jonah to turn the pagan Ninevites to him. And here, other pagans are actually pointing Jonah to God. How ironic is that? Like Jonah was supposed to go, he ran away. So God said, well, I'm just going to use someone else to point you back to me. Kind of reminding Jonah, I don't need you. I'm going to use you, but I don't need you. In fact, these pagans continue to be the ones that look more like God than Jonah does, the one who belongs to him. Let's continue the story. In verse 7, it says this, Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for the trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and, and they, the lots singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, 
the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear, and I said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. So they said to him, What should we do to the, so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they want to identify Jonah. They ask about his identity, and his identity is tied to the God that he serves. Then Jonah reveals that he was running from God, and these dudes knew that was not a great idea. Their response was, so you made God mad. He sent this storm. What do we got to do to make it stop? That's, that makes sense, right? So Jonah finally kind of comes to the realization, like, this is all my fault. I'm the problem. It's the problem. I'm the problem. It's me. That sounds like a lyric we've heard that might go with this, uh, with this sermon series. He realizes that he must be sacrificed. But even then, these pagan mariners try to row their way out of the storm. They don't want to kill him. They want to save him. They seem willing to do anything to save Jonah. It's wild, right? People who don't belong to God, acting like God. They seem to be willing to do everything in their power to see that he doesn't have to die to save them. Now both Jonah and these pagan mariners are, are showing something about love that's really, really deep. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this one down. Real love costs something. Real love costs something. For Jonah to love and serve these men, he had to sacrifice his very life, his very safety. For the mariners to love Jonah, they had to continue to put themselves in peril and row until their arms gave out. Love costs, period. Jesus showed us this in his parable that we call the Good Samaritan. Love cost the Samaritan something. It cost him time to stop and to pick up the man who was bleeding on the side of the road. It cost him money to put up the man in the inn. But however, I think that the thing that cost him the most was his own prejudices. For the Samaritan man to stop and save the Jewish one, the Samaritan man had to give up and lay aside centuries of dispersions, of tension, of anger, and of hatred. The man had to lay down his identity to love his neighbor. For us to love our neighbor's friends, we must lay down our identities and pick up the identity of Christ. We have to learn what it looks like to die to ourselves and to abide in Christ. And that's how we can love our so we see a distinct change in Jonah here. Why does he suddenly take responsibility for his actions? Has he become repentant? Maybe. The text doesn't seem to lend ourselves to that. He doesn't use any language of repentance here. It would be purely a guess to say that suddenly Jonah is repentant. It seems that Jonah doesn't really make a, a quick change here because he's looking at God. It actually seems like he makes a big change because he's looking at the sailors. 
Jonah refused God's call. He did not want to see mercy extended to pagans. And yet he faced the truth of these men's plight. When he's face to face with destruction that sin causes, something inside of him changed. To give him credit, which may be too much, Jonah was moved with compassion. And in this compassion, his life changed. All the life-changing love, all life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. It all costs us something. When we listen to someone in pain and we stay close to them, despite the emotional drain that they are on us, we sacrifice our good for theirs. When we raise our children to be the people that God created them to be, we must take the time to teach them, and listen to them, and guide them. We sacrifice some of our freedoms so that they can flourish. Love costs. For the first time in this story, the man of God is actually acting like the God to whom he belongs. And in doing so, he began to show us what Jesus, why Jesus would later on, thousands of years later, claim to be the better Jonah. In Matthew 12, he begins, he makes that analogy and says, you know the preaching of Jonah, yeah, how the Ninevites turned, yeah, well, I'm the better Jonah. Jonah began to show God's plan to save those that are far from him. That plan has always been substitutionary sacrifice. When Jesus came to earth bearing our humanity, and later when he, when he went to the cross bearing our sin, he became the greatest example of love that we could ever hope. Here the story of Jonah shows us this pattern that Jesus would perfect and pass on to us. Friend, whether you've been living for the common good and loving your neighbor or... If you've been like Jonah, hiding yourself away from the storms of life, I want to encourage you. This is the last thing I'll ask you to write down. It's never too late to love your neighbor. It's never too late. The story of Jonah shows us that. It shows us that the man who did everything wrong at the last moment decided to lay his down life for these men. The beauty of this sacrifice is revealed through the reaction of the mariners. Our passage today ends like this, verse 14. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with his innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him to the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. These men believed. See, the storms had stopped. They weren't making this as an ultimatum. They weren't saying, like, God, if, if you stop, I'll follow you. The sea stopped, and they knew God was powerful. So they said, we're going to follow you. And they actually used the covenant name for God. They used Yahweh, which is not a name that, it, that the, the pagans would have used. Because that is the covenant name that God gave to his people, that his people would call God. That, that translation there, Lord, in the middle of verse 14. It points to that. They were becoming covenantal people through faith, belief. It's incredible. Sacrificial love like Jonah's glorifies God. And when he's glorified, as people turn to him, the storm had ceased. Everything was done, but they were changed. They were sincerely changed by the power of a God who could inspire a man to die for them and his ability to save them. They were amazed. But there's a God that powerful. And this is the gospel. 
When we carry the truth that Jesus died for our friends to save them and that he has the power to save them, hearts will respond. That's just the truth. When our world sees our good works done in his name, they will glorify God. When the people of God refuse to do what he's called them to do, people perish. But when we are children of God, and when we act in accordance with who we are, when we're in Christ, by loving people sacrificially, we will see them saved. It's just the truth of the Bible. You can take it to the bank. That's what Jesus came to teach us. What better news is there than that there is a God who's powerful enough to calm life storms, who came, died for them, and he wants to save them and be with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to love. Thank you for modeling us what it looks like to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Lord, your word says that no greater love has a man than one who would lay down his life for his friends. Lord, I pray that we, as your people, would act like you. We pray that you would love us, and through that love, we would be able to be empowered to love others. Lord, that we would be about the common good. But because you love the world, you love these people that are far from you. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are ambassadors of light in a kingdom of darkness. We would be among them and we would be near them, but we wouldn't be of them. That we would be marked by you, marked by your love, marked by your grace. The people would know who you are because we love each other. God, we love you. Thank you for these teachings. Thank you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name.